entrepreneurship, the dream of being one's own boss, creating value, disturbing the norm, and all while making boatloads of money. From the outside, life as an entrepreneur can seem exciting and freeing. It might even seem like being your own boss and launching a new business where you are responsible for the paychecks of people is super fun. But it's not all rainbows and butterflies. No, no, no. The life of an entrepreneur is more or less like a game of tug of war that never ends. Sometimes you have easy wins and sometimes you get swept to your belly and land forehead first on the ground. But you always get back up and start pulling again because the work never really ends when you have a company or companies to run. If you've ever wondered what it would be like to start your own business, or if you've already started and you need some inspiration and real life business savvy advice from fellow entrepreneurs who have been through the ups and downs, then these next few episodes are exactly what you need to hear. I know that as a listener of Diferente, you crave inspiring content. That's why you tune in and come back week after week, right? So because of that, I really wanted to dig deep into the various topics that surround the word entrepreneur. Because let me be real here, entrepreneurship is a lifestyle. It ain't for the faint of heart. And there is no single formula for achieving entrepreneurial success. At Diferente, we know that success is a diverse word that can only be defined by each person individually. Therefore, I wanted to take the same approach to this topic. Except instead of your basic how do they do it story, I wanted you to hear how each entrepreneur's life led them to their current path because their lives are what tie them to their brand and their brand is the bloodline to their companies. I don't believe that you can have one without the other. If you're an entrepreneur, you are your company and your company is you until the day your company ceases to exist. As you can see, I'm super passionate about this topic and I hope you get as much out of these next six conversations. Over the next few episodes, you will hear from six different entrepreneurs who are all in different stages of their brand's life cycle. Some are just starting and some are making major waves that have disturbed industries. Each conversation focuses on a specific topic that keeps entrepreneurs up at night. The good news is that we can all learn from their struggles without having to sacrifice our beauty rest. Let me introduce you to Andrea Vieira. Andrea is a native of Brazil and an entrepreneur and co-founder of The Nail Saloon, Washington DC's premier luxury nail salon and cocktail parlor. Formerly a journalist and television producer, Andrea spent nearly 20 years creating content for Discovery Channel, True TV, HGTV, Animal Planet, and Discovery Health Channel, and for organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where she was also a speechwriter. And as a reporter, she has covered stories of Latin American interest all over the world. In this episode, Andrea and I focus on the courage to begin the entrepreneurial journey, why we should be proud of the wisdom we earn with age, and how to set realistic goals and expectations as a new business owner. Bienvenidos. Welcome to Diferente. My name is Maribel Quesada-Smith. I'm an expert at questioning everything who wants to bring more color into your life. I'll be coming at you every week with a little humor and a mountain of passion to share with you stories and ideas related to life, culture, creativity, and business that will inspire all of us to explore different perspectives. 
Don't be surprised if you find yourself motivated to shake things up. That's known to be a side effect of the Diferente life, and it's contagious. Now let's get to it. Buenos dias. Welcome to Diferente, Andrea. How are Buenos you? Buenos dias, Maribel. It's great to be here. I'm doing really well and very happy. So Portuguese is your first language. So how do you say buenos dias in Portuguese? Well, the first language thing is is interesting, but but how you say buenos dias in Portuguese is bon dia. Okay, bon dia. Bon dia, yeah. Okay, so it's not your first language? Yeah, well, it, it's, it's, it's interesting because... I was born in Brazil and, and it is essentially my first language, but I was alphabetized. I learned to read and write in school in, in the UK at a very young age when kids learn how to read and write. Um, but so my formal education began in English, even though my mom at home would school us in Portuguese, she didn't want us to fall behind when we went back to Brazil. So oh. um, I think I struggle between what really is my first language. Some, I've heard somewhere someone, someone say that the language you speak to babies in is your first language. And I tend to speak to babies in Portuguese, but, you know, who knows what really is a first language. <laughs> I do that with my dog, too, sometimes. I speak oh, in nice. Spanish. There you go. Yeah, they say, like, about dreams, you know, the language you dream in. And I'm not sure that's accurate. I think I've dreamt in languages that I'm not sure I understand. So Yeah, I, I dream in, in both English and Spanish. Yeah. Do you consider yourself to have a first language? Yeah, I do. I consider that my first language is Spanish because, okay. I mean, I grew up also going to a bilingual school, so I learned right. English pretty quickly. Probably, I think at age four, I started learning yeah. English. Yeah. But I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't bilingual at that point. Right. I knew words in English and I was able to right, read in English. I was able, yeah, I was able to write in English also, but I spoke Spanish all the time outside of school. So wait, how did you guys end up in the UK? Because you're originally from Brazil. Yeah, I was born in Brazil. I was born in a town called Belo Horizonte, which most people don't know, but it's one of the largest cities in Brazil after um, Sao Paulo and Rio. And uh, it's just, you know, a city of 4 million people. Um, but we, I was born there. And um, then my dad, who worked in public health his whole life, um, was uh, went to get a and Phil there, a master's in philosophy and public health at the University of Sussex in Brighton, um, Brighton on the Brighton by the sea. So on those rocky, you know, British beaches. Um, and so that's why we moved uh, to, to the UK. And I was, you know, I was, I think, three or four years old. Um, and so we ended up going there and staying there for a few years. And I had the most lovely British accent, which I would not dare try to do right now for you. But I, I did. If I have a few cocktails in me, I might, you know, try to pull it off to people who don't know what a British accent <laughs> sounds like. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we we lived there for 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 a bit, and then we moved back to Brazil. Um, and you know, we're in Brazil for a while, where my dad worked for the for the for the World Health Organization. That's how we ended up in the states after, because the World Health Organization, the the PAHO, the Pan American Health Organization is based here in Washington, D.C. So that's how we, we ended up here. And, and, and that's kind of how the story goes. I stayed, you know, my brothers also um, ended up staying in, in the U.S., even though some have lived in Brazil for stints. I have lived in Brazil for stints as well. Um, and so, yeah, but Spanish I learned because I lived in Spain and all of these moves uh -oh. also later. And when I was in college, I moved to Spain and then I moved to Spain again. And that's how I learned how to speak Spanish, which I really think is like my first love. Oh. The Spanish language and coffee are like my first loves. 
Okay. Well, cheers to that because I'm drinking some cafecito this morning also. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) You and me both. (laughs) Sometimes you need it. So you have lived in, let's see, Brazil, the UK, Spain, and the US. Yes. I have lived in four, but I've lived in nine cities. I've lived in two cities in Spain. I've lived in four cities in the, or five cities in the US. Um, I've lived in two cities in Brazil and I've lived in one city in the UK. So yeah, I think that adds up to nine. I think if my math is right. Is right. It's nine, nine cities. And which one is your favorite? Oh, that's a tough question. I might have a least favorite. I don't like to talk okay. about it in public. <laughs> Come on. Um, no, here's the thing. I think cities have personalities and I think cities can be sort of it depends, right? Because you live in a city when you're young, when you live with your parents and you live with your siblings, and then you live in a city when you're you know, later in life with, you know, you're there because of a boyfriend or you live in a city by yourself because of a job. So different cities take on different, I think, um, roles in your life and sometimes a little bit more of a supporting role, but sometimes they become like the full protagonist, you know? And um, I, I do think that every city that I've lived in has given me great gift. Do you think that you're most comfortable in a room full of people who are not from the same area because they're not measuring you to see how Brazilian you are or how American you are or because that's how I feel. I I'm Maybe. always worried about people measuring my Mexicanness. <laughs> if that's a thing. <laughs> yeah, no no no, for sure. You know, I never thought of that of why I never really gave it too much thought as to what the real root of that is. That very well might be it. I mean, in a way, we all sort of tell stories about the people we meet and we all put people in boxes. And I think it's unfortunate human nature. And I don't think it's always done with malicious intent. I think sometimes people just want to size you up and kind of label you something. But I do think that might be a reason. I also think it's because there's an element of like wonder and discovery when you're new to a situation. And when everybody in a, in a situation is new to you, you get to kind of discover them in a way that is curious, right? You get to ask them questions um, that maybe you wouldn't ask if all of you knew we're so familiar with each other's history. And I think that is something that that I'm drawn to as well. But I definitely think there there's an element of of that, of like, the, you know, the judgment that comes with how, you know, if you're not Brazilian enough, if, you're, if I'm in a room full of Brazilians and I'm the only person who's like this odd Brazilian, I might feel a little bit inadequate because I don't feel necessarily like I match up to all the things that I would think that they expect mm. me to match up to. Is there such a thing? So in here in the States, a lot of people who are of Latin American backgrounds speak Spanglish. Is there such a thing right. as Portuglish? <laughs> Portuglish. You know, it's funny. I have not heard it. We, we speak Portuñol, you know, which is a mixture of Portuguese and Spanish. A lot of people do. And I always find it to be charming and, and funny and a little bit irreverent. We say things like, as a joke, you know, you'll say things like Coca-Cola, which what? is instead of Coca-Cola, oh. you say Coca-Cola, <laughs> which is like your Portuguese way of speaking Spanish. Or you put ito at the end of everything, you know? Chiquito. Like, you say a Brazilian word. Yeah, you say everything with ito at the end. Um, I would say that Portuguese is kind of a weird language, you know. It's I love it. I'm I'm grateful I speak it, um, but it's not obviously not as present as Spanish in the U.S. Mm. or really anywhere. Um, even though you know, if you take I think South America alone, more people speak Portuguese than they speak Spanish, just because of the volume. Yeah, of Brazil. Brazil is huge, but. Um, 
Yeah, but still, it's not as used. You know, Spanish is really useful. I feel like a lot of doors opened for me when I started learning. When I learned Spanish, it kind of my world sort of opened. And Portuguese, I don't think gave your me Spanish that. is impeccable. Because when I first met you, I just assumed <laughs> that <laughs> Spanish was either your first language or you know you had grown up in a Spanish speaking country. Well, it's a thank you. Well, this is what's interesting. I moved to Spain my sophomore year in college. I moved to Sevilla where, you know, people have a real, it's serious in Sevilla. They're not messing around with that, that <laughs> accent. It's like fast and choppy and, and Sevillanos are really funny and they're very quick witted. And so it is like, it's like Spanish on steroids. It really was for me. And so, but I remember thinking I have one year. And I've got to learn this language. Come, come hell or high water, I have to learn this language. And I would walk around the streets, like going home from school, and um, just rip, like reading signs out loud and like trailing the radio. Like I would put on my you know, my disc man because let's not date ourselves. Um, and, and, and it would skip as I, you walked because exactly. <laughs> that's what happened. Pop in my CD and listen to some music to a mixtape. There wasn't even that actually a mixtape on CD. Like that wasn't a thing yet. But actually, you know, I never thought of this either. The benefit of being in Spain when I was there, when I was trying to learn a new language, when where I was able to immerse, where email was starting to exist, but it didn't really exist. It was kind of complicated to get to email. Mm -hmm. And so it was really cool to be able to be there and not have the internet and not have access to just stuff on the phone and messages coming in all day long. I think that would have hindered my learning. And so I became obsessive. I said, I have a year to learn and this is my year. And so I'm not leaving until I speak this language fluently. And so I beat it into my own head <laughs> and I learned. And That's awesome. And you know, you know, friends later, relationships later, those things all help solidify a language, right? Mm -hmm. And so my world right now is is very much in Spanish. My business partners from Argentina, all of our business is run in Spanish. 100%, okay. You know, we dip into English every once in a while, but our business, I mean, all of our emails about the business, all of our just communication about it, our meetings are all in Spanish. Okay. Which is kind of cool. Yeah. So, okay. So then you studied in Spain for a year and then you came back to the States or when did you start your career as a producer? Cause I, that's how we met. You were a producer when we met. Right. Right. That's, it's true. I think, and I think the first gig we did together was Miami. Miami wasn't yes. It? I mean, that's <laughs> right. Um, and I remember by the way, if I may say, we would joke about the word podcast. Yes. Do you remember this? <laughs> Do you remember? <laughs> so this is kind of a full circle moment for me because you used to say podcast. We would joke like podcast or something funny. We had some yes. really funny jokes. Late nights of working and editing that always lead to oh my god, lead to things. Those like were that. very and late no, nights. No kidding, they were overnights. And you know what's funny? I listened to that podcast <laughs> when I yes this year when I was working on researching and getting started with Diferente. I remembered that I had done a podcast no. back in two. What was it? Two thousand seven? No, two thousand eight. Yeah, was it two thousand eight? Okay, two thousand eight. Yeah, that was a long time. So ago. in two thousand eight, I did my first well, podcast. Look at you. Can I? I want to get a, my hands on this thing. I want to hear it. That's amazing. <laughs> I will never tell anybody what <laughs> well, it's called. Secret no, that's pretty cool. I mean, it's clear that you had a calling for this way before it was really a thing. I mean, you, yeah, you were ten years look at later you, pioneering woman. I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, you know, I wish I would have s 
stayed wow. with that. The, that's one of those that's one of those regrets that I have. I hate to say regret, but it is kind of a regret that I have about my 20s. I spent <laughs> I spent so much time worrying about silly things in my 20s that I didn't focus enough on my goals and my dreams and things that I thought when would propel me. You're kind of in that space where you're just really around to make mistakes and learn from them and to not focus on your career and to sure focus a little bit on your career, but also like worry about the stuff that doesn't matter as much. Cause later you're not going to be able to, you're just going to have to worry about unfortunately yeah. the stuff that matters. So I, I don't know. I'm kind of glad you had a kind of a, your twenties that were filled with, you know, <laughs> debauchery and silliness. Cause you won't get a chance to do yeah. that again. And now you're focusing on your career and, or you have been for the last however many years and and that stuff catches up. I don't think there's you know. Yeah. We we tend to get be in a race in this country and I don't I feel like in the world really. Like we're always running to try to get to the next thing and to and I'm 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 at fault too. I'm not trying to like say that I it's not something I struggle with, but I do think we're very unforgiving with ourselves. Man, yes, you are right about that. I think we are very yeah. unforgiving with ourselves. And there's a reason for that. I think it's because there's, it's just a lot easier to compare ourselves now because we see so much in the media and not just in your regular media, but on Excellent social media. Point. We're constantly seeing examples of people who are younger than us, doing better than us, or what we would consider we better than us. And we feel like we, we have to constantly have to catch yeah, I mean, up. Here's the thing. Yeah, what we assume it, from what it, we see, it's right? It's easy to tell like a story of a life. It's really easy to compare um, ourselves to the lives that we think people are having. But it's also very easy to create a fake life online. You know, it's easy to create a life that doesn't belong to you, that doesn't match your reality, which at times I'm thankful for. Like, I don't know that I'd want to be going on social media, which I'm t I don't use as much as, as one probably should, but you don't want to go on and read about people's hardships all day long, right? But everybody hurts as the old REM song goes, you know, <laughs> it's, it's true. I mean, <laughs> yes. everybody has something they're going through. And when you look online, you're getting a really filtered version of what people want to show. And I, that's okay. That's valid. But I also think that we have to be careful not to, I mean, I do it too. Don't get me wrong. Like I do it too. I'm like, Oh man, look at that. I wish I was in Bali, you know, and here I am working and here I am slaving away, you know, as if the person who went to Bali didn't slave away also at some point the week prior or the right. week after he or she returns. So it's yeah. easy. To, I call Facebook fake book because I do think that, <laughs> I mean, Including with the fake news. Yeah, it, it's very, very timely. Yeah, fa Facebook is not getting the love of a lot of people right now with all the with the, with the mess that has been created, you know, to not necessarily yes. entirely their fault. I think we all have a role in that. But, um, but you know, it's easy to compare. And I think you're right, though. I think the reason that we're so unforgiving um, is because we have constant points of comparison. Um, just screaming at us all day long for our attention. And it's with people we know, with people we don't know. I'm interrupting this awesome episode to ask you a favor. Will you take a few seconds to leave a review? Tell me what other topics you would like to hear on the show. It takes less than 30 seconds to write a review and you can help change lives. Okay, I mean, that might be an exaggeration, but that's the kind of impact that Diferente is all about. A brighter outlook, a different perspective, all of this can be life transforming. 
yeah, we kind of made a little bit of a detour and we didn't finish talking about how you became a producer. <laughs> we started talking about Miami and how we met. Oh, this is, this is, it's like we're having wine on a balcony somewhere and it's conversation is going everywhere. How I became a producer. So I studied um, at the University of Maryland um, at their wonderful um, College of Journalism. And I studied broadcast journalism and I was looking for a job in, in, in journalism. And I thought, okay, where does one go when one wants to you know, look for a job in journalism? And I always wanted to be covering international news. I didn't want to do local news. Um, and so I, you know, sent my resume to CNN and in Atlanta and was interviewed and um, went through an interview in a selection process and got a job being what they called it back then. I don't even know if they have this anymore, but it co- called a VJ, a video journalist. Oh, yeah, I remember those. I mean, <laughs> this is like old school. And see, I mean, the job was like you were loading the, you were like running the teleprompter, you were <laughs> loading the printer for the anchors, you were essentially like punching in one, one, like, graphic in the control room for, you know, on the board, like you were doing really specific tasks um, at all sorts of hours. And when you started as a VJ, you would, um, you know, work, you know, the night shift and the weekends, and you had really kind of unforgiving hours, and you were just paying your dues, you know, and really watching how a news operation comes together. And then I was very lucky, I met a man, um, called Abel Dimant, who was no longer with us. And he was quite a mentor to me. And Abel um, was from Argentina. I met him. He was in, uh, the, the sort of head of news for CNN in Espanol. And, you know, I was hungry. I was uh, in my, you know, 20s. And I was just, I wanted to just meet and see and learn and whatever it took, right? So I, you know, I knocked on his door one day and I said, I wanted to talk to him. And he, you know, welcomed me and I said, is there anything I can learn here? And he needed a desk assistant at the assignment desk in CNN Español. And so I started sort of moonlighting and doing my regular VJ work and training with him on the desk. And then at one point he decided to hire me. And so I I left the VJ program and I became a desk assistant. And then I became an assignment desk editor, which was like the best, you know, grad school ever in in a newsroom because you just, you're really on the go. Mm -hmm eight hours a day or more. And, um, it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful training. And that's how I got, I got, um, into sort of my producing chops too. I, I started, you know, producing stories with people. And, um, and then when I left CNN, um, I came up to, it was around nine eleven. I was, I got a job, uh, covering, um, post 9-11 um, in New York. And I moved to New York for that. And um, and that's really when I got my sort of like field chops, mm-hmm. um, just doing a lot of field work after 9-11 and the six months that followed until the light beams came up at, at, um, at the site of the uh, ground zero. And so I did that. And then I, then I went, you know, and then it just when one thing led to the next, yeah. meeting people, doing things. And then I worked in everything from like reality TV to documentaries to you name it, to being a reporter on camera, which is then kind of, I think, when we met. Yes. Because I was freelancing and I worked for Telemundo for a while and um, as an on-camera reporter. And then I produced for them. And 
And then it just kind of became a hodgepodge of like, we'll work for food. You know, like <laughs> I did, I did really like, you name it. I did it. I was like, I'm game. I'll learn. I'll do, I've never done that. I'll do it. You know, I was pretty uh, brazen, I think for, for, a, for a young professional. Cause I was game to just be thrown in the water. You mentioned something earlier about paying your dues, which is a phrase that I haven't heard in a while. And I think, I don't know why, but I think it's kind of seen as a negative thing in the millennial generation. I think a lot of people are like, I don't want to or have to pay any dues. I want to go to where I want to go and I want to get there now. You know, there's a lot of impatience going on, which I think it can be good and bad, you know, because there's a lot of innovation that happens when people are impatient and when people want right. to just solve problems right. and get to it. And then right. at this, at, on the other side, you know, there's a lot of inexperience. And so maybe more mistakes are made or I don't know. I, I see both sides of the coin. What do you think right. about the whole term paying your dues? And do you think it's absolutely necessary? Because I have to say, I don't know. I sometimes I think it's just <laughs> it's just a buzzword that older generations use. Older people to, no, and, uh, <laughs> no, 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 I'm gay. Listen, I know. Listen, I'm I'm 43 years old. I wear it proudly, and I get it. I've been around for a minute. You know, I get it. <laughs> I don't mean uh, it like that. No, 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 no. It's good. It's good. I got no problems. I got no problems you, in no, my but, age. I am fully in my in my 43 and a half space, and I'm happy to be here. No, I know. What you but mean. you know what but, I mean. It's like it's almost like sometimes used to say, "Yo, stay in your lane." Okay. Right. Right. <laughs> so here's the thing. I don't work with tons of millennials and Gen Zers or, or, or any of that. And I, so I, I can't comment on, you know, on personal experience. I, you know, you read a lot about people not wanting to pay their dues and entitlement of millennials and the participation trophy generation that like everybody won an award yeah. and therefore they're used to, you hear a lot about that. I don't know how much of that is hype and how much of that is real. I do think that the paying your dues is important for one reason. It's not because it's humbling. It's not because it's um, it puts you in your place. I think it just makes you a better professional later in life because you've done that work and you know what it takes to do that work. That's and the more right. you know about what it takes to do any job, the better equipped you are later to lead the people doing that job. You know, it doesn't matter if it's chopping onions in a kitchen or, you know, being a production assistant running, you know, running gaffer tape from one set to another. Like it doesn't really matter what it is. If you've done it, you're just a more whole, you're, you're more whole as a professional. So I, you, I hear a lot about, you know, millennials not wanting to pay their, you know, quote unquote, pay their dues. And yeah. I, I was impatient too, when I was, when I was younger, I, I can't say that I wasn't, I wanted to grow. I wanted a better title. I wanted more opportunity. I wanted a better salary. Like I was pretty impatient and I was willing to, of course, do all sorts of work that needed to get done. Um, but I, I think it, it's made me better in general. You know, this is the thing. There's dignity in every step of every job. Like Absolutely. there's no job that it's just not really, I don't know. I, when I was my first job producing and I had a, a team under me, I remember I would go and get coffee for everyone. And I remember hearing somebody say to me, one of my colleagues who was also a producer and who was more senior than I was like, wow, you know, you're doing the job of the PA. And I'm like, the coffee just needs to be gotten. Like, this isn't an issue of like, <laughs> of status. Who gets the, yes. the coffee needs to arrive. And so <laughs> if I go or if they go, or the, the boss here is not me. It's the coffee that needs to be consumed by all of us. Like, so I kind of have a, 
I, I do think that it's helpful for people to know um, sort of the less glitzy work by having done it. I think that this new generation, millennials, Gen Zers, they are hardworking. I do think that they're hardworking. From what I do observe, they're, I mean, they're disrupting industry, you know? That doesn't come because they're all, you know, sitting around waiting for- Handouts. Yeah, I really don't think they are, but I do, I know they get a bad rap. They get a bad Mm -hmm. rap and, and maybe there is some of that, right? But I do think that it's important for people to kind of reframe how they think about work, you know? Every TV show that I've ever worked on, I always say the show is the boss. Like we're all here serving the show. We're not serving me. We're not serving the executive producer. We're not serving in the head of the network. We're here serving the show. And if the show demands it, then we have to do it. It doesn't matter who does it. I think that paying my dues has helped me become a more empathetic leader. So when you've been through the trenches or you've done the jobs of a PA or an assistant or whatever at the beginning, when you come to a position where you're managing people, you are a lot more empathetic and you're a lot more understanding as a leader. And you can actually become better at your job by having those experiences. For for me, that's been the case. I just feel like Agreed. when I'm designing new positions, when I'm hiring for other positions, I'm thinking about the experiences that I've had and I keep that in mind when I ask somebody to do something because I know what the job entails. I know how hard it is. I know how long they work sometimes. So Agreed. that's kind Agreed. of part of it too. I think that if you if you jump through all of that, if you jump past it, it's harder to relate and it's harder to it's understand true. True. where these people are coming from who are working you know, for you or reporting to you. Absolutely. You really get rid of like the imposter syndrome when you've, when you've done it yourself, you, because you're not faking it, right? Mm-hmm. You've seen it, you've done it, you've been a part of it, you know what it feels like. So I, I agree. I agree. It makes people better equipped. You know, you hear these stories, this doesn't happen as much now, but you hear these stories of, you know, the guy that worked up from the mailroom and he, you know, worked and is like the head of the company now. And we don't hear that as much anymore mm-hmm. of like, you know, the person who really started from, from scratch and became, and it, I think it would almost make it sound like people are jumping through sort of past, skipping stages to get somewhere. And I think there are other avenues that help you get things, you know, education helps you get to certain, in certain industries to get you ahead or certain experiences help you move forward. But I do think there's a great value in having done all the steps, Yeah, you know, you just become a better professional and certainly a better leader for sure more empathetic like you said and 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 absolutely there's there's great value in it. and I, I i do you know i i have a good friend um and we who works in human resources and we always talk about how millennials get such a bad rap i mean they're being they're being and i don't know if that's just what older people like me do to younger generations and we just you know spit on them a little bit like what is that you know <laughs> but i do think that they do get a bad rap but i also think that they're also living in a time of transition like they've they've experienced we've experienced you know my generation i'm a i'm you know i don't know generation x i x. guess and we, <laughs> we've experienced you know the birth of the internet but it, it didn't become so pervasive in our lives until later. These guys kind of were the first wave to have it in college and to kind of reframe the way they learn. And 
I kind of feel for them. They get a lot of crap from from older people. I really do think they do. And I don't think it's always warranted because they've done cool things. Yeah. Millennials have done cool things and, and continue to do cool things, right? So mm-hmm. yeah, is there a little bit of entitlement? Maybe, but I think youth comes with that, you know? There kind of is this, we weren't maybe, you know, entitled, but probably a little bit. It's easy to forget yeah. how, you know, maybe we were also impatient and we were oh, also, yeah. super. you know? <laughs> I thought I could do anything. I was like, of course I can do that job, even though it was somebody with 10 years of experience more than me was really doing it. I'm like, I can do it. What do you mean? You know? So maybe, yeah, I'm not a millennial, but I'm sure I had my entitlement moments for sure when I was younger. Maybe maybe even now, I probably wouldn't admit to them as freely. <laughs> but No, I understand. So it's time for us to dig deep. Um, we're going to turn the corner here a little bit. Let's talk about what happened after you became a producer. You worked as a producer for several years. But I'm guessing, and I don't know this because we kind of lost touch a little bit, that you were not happy or fulfilled with what you were doing because you completely went a different direction (laughs) to start a new business. So take me to the point before you make the decision to change things up in your life. What were you thinking? What were you feeling Right. Well, that's it's interesting that that you ask about a point. I think a lot of times people who work in television have sort of like a back dream to, you know, run a bed and breakfast, open up a surf school. You have these <laughs> like very different things because television is grueling. It is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> I, I have it. not met people with stronger work ethic than the people in television. It is like, I always say, you know, you've never turned the television on and the thing hasn't been on. The show is always on. Like there is no like, oh, we didn't finish the show. Show's not on. Like the show is always on. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like you've never turned on the TV in your life, nor will you ever. And the thing hasn't been there that you wanted to watch. (laughs) Because it's, there's this weird um, sort of, urgency that is created and and people joke in TV people who work in production oh it's you know it's cable not cancer well no it's actually <laughs> you would think right no but people act like it's cancer let me tell you for real sometimes and i do have to check myself and be like yo this is just television it, right but it's <laughs> there's it, it attracts a kind of person i think this industry that that it's a very do or die. Yeah. Like, oh, I have seen people miss, I mean, I have missed birthdays. I have missed um, weddings. I have missed births of children of dear of people I love because of work. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're in uh, out shooting something in the middle of wherever. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, hold on. I missed that. Well, yeah, you did because your job <laughs> becomes this like holy grail that you kind of have to, you know, and that's kind of the expectation too in the industry. Absolutely. If you don't see it that way, you're out. Like somebody else behind yeah, yeah, you will be you glad to take your job. For sure. And people are like, oh, I'm going to be doing, you know, a friend will say, I'm getting married in six months. And you're like, I don't know what I'll, where I'll be in six months. I can't commit to anything or anyone, which causes like all sorts of other problems in your personal life. But it's a tough industry and it, and you have to love it. And I did love it. And I and I still have great friends who work in, in television and in film. And the thing is, though, that in the back of my mind, I, I would always say, God, this isn't the life that I want. I want like an actual life. Like my favorite thing to do in the world is not compatible 
with this business. And my favorite thing to do in the world is sit around a table with people I love, enjoying a glass of wine and just chatting and not having anywhere to go. And TV didn't allow for enough of that in my life. There's also this like lingering thought of you're never able to keep up. I think as women, and I've heard this from a lot of other women or uh, female producers out there, they there's this concern that as you age, you kind of age out of the industry. Unless oh, yeah. you're really high up, unless you're an EP, you know, executive producer or mm-hmm. running a show or in the network, mm-hmm. there's a certain point where it seems like you age out. And it's really scary as a woman to think about that because this is the career that you've devoted all of your time to and missed weddings and birthdays for. Did you ever feel that way? A hundred percent. I think that a lot of, you know, I, I, you've heard me say my age already and I say my age often and I do it on purpose. Um, and I, the reason I do is because I feel like we as women have to fight the stigma of age because a lot of us buy into this thing of like, well, if you, if they know my age, they're not going to hire me. Well, mm-hmm. then let's like change the narrative, right? Let's like make sure that we, otherwise we're just enabling them. Right. Yeah. But I do agree that it's a really hard industry to stay in as you grow older, because I do think that it, it favors youth for a few reasons. I think also, you know, some of it is practicality. A lot of people who are in their, you know, twenties don't have families yet and they have more willingness to, you know, stay until five in the morning, finishing whatever it is that needs to get done. And so I do think that some of it is, is, is based on a sort of a, a practicality, but I also think that, it is a very ageist industry, especially for women. And it's not something I experienced until I, t- I became, I started getting older. You know, when I was in my twenties, I was like, no, it's not, it's fine. And in my thirties. <laughs> and then later you're like, huh, I'm experiencing some of that myself, you know? And I've talked to friends, men who have started to experience it too. They're like, you know, for the first time, I feel like I could be passed up on something exclusively because of my age. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is also rate. I think the older you get, the more you start charging and they can find people that would do the job for oh yeah, half the amount of money. So the hungry, you know, 20 year olds who are willing to, sure, I'll do it for free almost, you know? Yeah. Um, because it, because they want to get their foot in the door. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that it's hard. And I see a lot of my friends, women struggling um, in, in this industry right now and, and looking for a plan B because the industry is changing a lot too. You know, television is not what it used no, to be. Not at um, all. Yeah. Now you have to be able to produce, shoot, edit. <laughs> oh, for sure. And, and then like, and then like tweet about it and, you know, do, you know, viral videos and, you know, you, tweet, you name it. And tweet like, with your, exactly. Tweet about it with your foot while your hands are on the keyboard editing, while for your sure. mouth is. Like, Exactly. Talking into the microphone, narrating. Exactly. And like do a <laughs> podcast of the behind the scenes and then do like, you know, I mean, you name it. It's like, you know, and a Facebook live because it's, you know, it's like content has become this behemoth yeah. that is like so multifaceted that you're expected to just pump it out. And, and you're also competing against that much more content that's everywhere else. So mm-hmm. it's not easy. It's not an easy industry. And I think part of the reason I wanted to get out was because I knew that, um, that I would eventually, I'm a pretty impulsive person. <laughs> I knew that eventually I would be like, that's it. I'm done. I'm never doing any of it again. I don't care what that means. I'm not doing it, you know? Yeah. So before I got to that point where I was going to be like stubborn and put my, drag my heels into the ground and say, I will not do anything else. And I don't know how my bills are going to get paid. I decided, let me find a plan B here that might be suitable. Tune in next week to hear the rest of Andrea's story. 
or if you're listening in the future. Hello, future people! Is Trump still president? Anyway, just look for the episode labeled 132, part 2. Thank you for listening to Diferente. If you like this episode, let me know by leaving a five-star review and by sharing a screenshot of this podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Just don't forget to tag me at Adiferente Life so I can know you're listening. Hasta pronto.